My name is Kate Lucky, and I'm speaking today with Megan O'Giblin, who's the author of the forthcoming uh, October 9th debut essay collection, Interior States. I was introduced to her work through the essay, Dispatch from Flyover Country, which was chosen for the 2016 Best American Essays collection. I flew through my copy of Interior States in the very fragrant Hungarian pastry shop over a cup of tea in the rain near our office here in Morningside Heights. Today, Megan's calling our Manhattan office from Madison, Wisconsin, where she lives with her husband. And we're going to talk about this new collection. It's great to be speaking with you today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So I thought we'd start out by having me read a really short passage from the preface to your collection. I feel compelled to mention that I did not set out in any deliberate way to write about these topics. In seeing these essays collected, it's difficult to avoid sensing something perverse in the fact I've returned so obsessively to the religion I spent my early adulthood trying to escape. And while I have written so much about the Midwest, the truth is that I've often felt that I would prefer to live almost anywhere else. I'm not sure how to account for this, except to say that it's a paradox of human nature that the sites of our unhappiness are precisely those that we come to trust most heartily, that we absorb most readily into our identity, and that we defend most vociferously when they come under attack. Like the convert who develops a fondness for the darker moments of her testimony, I have come through the act of writing to believe in the virtue of my experience. These essays are a record of that process and continue some provisional attempts to make sense of these preoccupations. So I'd love to have you reflect on that passage a little bit, to talk about these preoccupations. You speak also in the preface of your life as evidence of collecting experiences that you've had in this place, inside and outside of this faith, as a writer, a thinker, a reader, presenting it to us as evidence, as a process of testimony and working through ideas. What are some of the ideas that you think you're working through in this book? What does the evidence point us towards at the end of the day? Well, it's interesting. I wrote this preface maybe a year ago when I was putting all the essays together in a collection for the first time. And mostly the collection represents the work that I've done since I think the first essay was published in 2011. So over the past seven years or so, you know, that I didn't set out in any deliberate way to write about these topics. I didn't say one day, oh, I'm going to write a book about Christianity or about the Midwest. And so I think in seeing the essays collected and in having to write a preface um, and sort of make sense of them, I was really forced to contend with the fact that these are obsessions of mine. These two ideas that are contained in the essay collection, faith, my experience growing up as a Christian, and then leaving that tradition, and then also what it means to live in the Midwest at this particular moment in history. And the truth is that I do have very ambivalent feelings about both aspects of my life. I have, you know, a lot of mixed feelings about my upbringing in, in the church um, and also about living in the Midwest. It's sort of a love-hate relationship for me. And I think one of the reasons why I wrote about those topics is because of that ambivalence, because I'm trying to work something out. And a lot of things in life that I, I love with unadulterated love and have very clear feelings about, and I never end up writing about those things because, I don't know, I guess as these depend on tension of some kind, uh, particularly a personal internal tension. I wrote a piece about um, my experience listening to Christian contemporary music or CCM when I was growing up. And then I wrote, I think the second essay was the piece I wrote about hell and the role of hell in evangelical theology and how it's been changing. And so, you know, I wrote these essays, you know, within, I'm going to say six or seven years after I, I had left Bible school. And so writing them was really a way to like return to these issues 
that I felt were unresolved sort of questions that were both personal and having to do with sort of this larger culture that I'd been a part of. Um, so yeah, I think the process of writing the essays in many ways has been like a very deeply personal, I don't want to say it was a therapeutic (laughs) process for me, but in many ways it, it was, it was sort of a way to reconcile these things that were deeply bound up with my identity and that I hadn't been able to elucidate before I started putting them into writing. Two essays that you just mentioned, the essay on hell and the essay on Christian music. And both of those, you highlight a sort of hypocrisy within the church of trying to appeal to mass culture, whether that's watering down the conception of hell in order to get people in the door into mega churches and only hear what God can do for them in this life without really talking about the stakes of salvation or the existence of somewhere other than heaven, somewhere outside of God's favor. You say the same thing about Christian music, that in a way it's trying to mimic popular culture, mimic the punk, the rock, the hip hop that teens are listening to and insidiously bring them over to the other side um, without really reckoning what it might mean to live outside of that culture. Even when I was a teenager, you know, I sort of sensed that there was something disingenuous about the music I was listening to, you know, this this Christian contemporary music that had been cultivated for people of my generation. And then with the theology of hell, it was the same thing. I, I sort of noticed over time that the tone of sermons in the evangelical churches I had attended had begun to change. They were much more upbeat. They were much more sort of about self-help and personal development and not so much about core theological issues and particularly shying away from the question of sin, hell, um, eternal damnation. When I was writing the essays, I was really forced to think about those questions, not just on a personal gut level, but sort of the systems that were behind them. And, you know, were these conscious choices that people in the church were making? Was there a concerted effort to try to rebrand Christianity? And it turns out that there was throughout, especially throughout the 90s. um, I did a, a huge amount of research about Christian musicians during the time and Christian music producers and um, sort of the conversations they were having. And it was a lot about how are we going to compete with MTV? You know, how are we going to make Christianity cool for this generation that's been raised on MTV? And a lot of the Christian bands were just trying to, you know, mimic whatever was popular in the secular culture at that time. So you have, you know, bands like DC Talk, who I, I, was a big fan of them when I was growing up. They had started out as a hip hop group in the early 90s when, you know, hip hop had become very popular. And mid 90s, when the grunge movement sort of hit the mainstream, they changed their whole look and ethos and musical style and became basically a grunge band. You know, we're going to try to just latch on to whatever's popular in this moment and try to, to you know, attract children to the, to the church at whatever cost. A lot of people had had made this observation, particularly on like Christian blogs and in more of like the evangelical community, it would become a critique of basically the business model church, which is what Bill Hybels and Rick Warner often cited as sort of the founders of this new type of church that was going to be, that was going to use consumer marketing and try to build their church to fit more of a consumer model. Um, I think it's now been called like the seeker sensitive movement. So sort of these large evangelical megachurches that are trying to 
make this experience as comfortable as possible for people who are not familiar with Christianity for the newcomer. In the 90s, Bill Hybels especially held conferences for churches across the country for evangelical pastors to come and find out how they could do surveys in their community and find out what people are looking for. How can we make church more comfortable for people, more palatable? How can we make the theology more palatable? I get the sense reading your essays that you are interested in in hypocrisy, but also in authenticity. And there's a sense that I get from you that you think that perhaps the church would be served by leaning into the elements of its message that are radically countercultural instead of trying to fall in with the culture and use capitalistic models to bring people in. And I got that sense, especially in reading your essay about exile and thinking about how legitimate the evangelical movement can seem when they're appropriating stories to bring politicians to power and how instead, if they operated outside of those systems of power or said that they didn't need someone in the White House to spread their message or to have strong communities or to live in the country, that perhaps that would be more attractive to people. Um, Can you say a little bit about what you think would be helpful for the church in this moment and regaining some of its legitimacy or the kind of cultural posture you wish it would take that it doesn't take or has had trouble taking? I think 2011, 2012, you know, I I think I did feel very strongly at that time that the church should stay true to is theology, even if it was, you know, not uh, culturally relevant. This is the, the the term that a lot of evangelicals were using around the time was how to be more culturally relevant. And that if that meant preaching about hell, or if that meant having music that was unfashionable, or, you know, sort of not jiving with what's going on in the larger culture, that, that would, for one, I think, just be more true to the tenets of the faith, which is, you know, that we're supposed to be living as Christians in, in the world and not of it. And also that it would ultimately, I think, be more attractive to people of my generation who are very attuned to issues of hypocrisy and sort of are are used or came up in a culture that was always trying to sell us something or trying to appeal to our baser instincts, I guess. And what's interesting is that since I published those essays, I think that argument has become much more common. I think a lot of people my age who came up in the evangelical megachurch culture have since really become disillusioned with that. And they identify a lot of them as post-evangelical or ex-evangelical. Um, a lot of them are gravitating more toward mainline churches. And you, you see this trend also in the books that are being published right now about Christianity, like the Rod Dreher book, The Benedict Option. He's made this case. And to some extent, you know, others have too in the, in the church that, that Christians should abandon this whole idea of the culture wars, stop trying to control American politics. That idea is, on one hand, very attractive to me. But the, you know, I read the Dreyer book when I was writing the piece about Mike Pence. I've been talking about how a lot of a lot of evangelicals have sort of started saying similar things, like we need to abandon partisan politics and focus more on just preserving our rights as Christians, making sure that we have the right to believe the things that we do in the public square. 
you know, I think that that is nice that, you know, Christians aren't trying to impose their values on, on the rest of the country. We I don't I think we are not really a Christian nation anymore. But at the same time, it seems like it's just another form of politics. I think like it seems as though a lot of Christians have switched from offense to defense. Somebody like Mike Pence, when he talks about freedom of religion. He's talking about Christianity as though it's a form of identity politics. He he passed the Restoration of Religious Freedom Act um, in Indiana when he was governor. And um, in the media appearances, he never talked about Christianity as a national ethos. He talked about Christians being able to have the right to refuse to, say, make a cake for a gay wedding or to refuse services when it conflicted with their beliefs. It, I am happy to see that some Christians are sort of moving away from this idea of political dominance. I don't know that it's necessarily any more benign um, from my point of view sort of the, the the retreat ethos that people are talking about today. The Midwest is its specificity. So you're able to tell us how you're seeing industrial warehouses changing into breweries or coffee shops. You're able to watch farmers markets pop up. You're able to think about the stories your grandfather told about living in Detroit and working side by side with lots of different people differently in the Trump era and sort of watch decline and gentrification happen uh, in spurts and starts. I lived in Wisconsin with my husband for several years. Uh, We both went to graduate school in Madison, Wisconsin. And we moved basically back to the town where I'd grown up, Muskegon, Michigan, which is this very small town on Lake Michigan. You know, being back in that area after being away for a while, I was very attuned to the way in which it had changed since I was a child, you know, the fact that the, the old paper mill had been torn down, all of these factories were gone, um, that the city was trying to rebrand itself as a tourist location, that there was a farmer's market, all of these sort of farm to table restaurants were popping up. And, you know, I think whenever you move, you know, you, you sort of are very, very sort of tuned into all of these things that you're inured to um, when you're just living somewhere for a long time. And so I think that helped me see the Midwest in a different way as this place that was changing and that the industry was was changing from being, you know, an industrial economy to a service and digital economy. That piece just started as a series of anecdotes. I wrote, you know, about the different restaurants there. I wrote about, you know, going back to the Bible camp. I had grown up uh, attending with my parents. You also have to take a critical stand in many of these essays. And this collection includes literary criticism about John Updike, about motherhood in a novel called The Wonder. You come down with critical assertions about digital culture and meditation and mindfulness, the Pure Michigan ad campaign. And I'm interested in how you've learned to trust your critical instincts. I think as a young writer, and for the writers who are listening to this podcast, that can be difficult to do, uh, as difficult in some ways as finding subtlety, but for someone like yourself, whose natural inclination is ambivalence or seeing both sides of things or questioning yourself to be able to take a critical stand on a piece of literature or on a cultural phenomenon. How have you learned to trust those instincts? Yeah, I don't think I do trust my instincts. I think uh, that's always a challenge. The idea that I have ambivalence or that I am subtle in my writing is something I was completely unaware of until I, I started writing essays and I kept getting these comments back from editors. 
I, I thought that the the piece I wrote about Hal and about Christian music, I felt like they were like these very strong indictments against the church. And, you know, people, the, the reaction to them, even among Christians and um, secular readers, both was that it, they were more nuanced than I, I thought that they were. With criticism, you know, there there are a few pieces in here where I, I write about John Updike or a few other novels. And um, for me, that's easier to have sort of a concrete opinion. Just I think the form is a little bit more limited where you have to just sort of make a point and you can't really consider all sides. Um, I think the nature of criticism is you have to have one opinion and sort of follow it through to the end. But yeah, it's it's funny. It's hard for me to, to answer the question about how do I trust my instincts because I feel like I'm constantly doubting them. And I feel like I refine my opinions when I'm writing through doubt. I guess through, you know, saying something and then considering it through every possible lens. I love writing because you're able to do that in writing. You know, you're not able to do that when you're in an oral debate with somebody or if you're just having a conversation, you know, you sort of say like what I'm doing right now. I'm just saying things that I'm probably going to come back and revisit hours later and wish I had said them differently. But the great thing about writing is that you can put your, your ideas through this very rigorous process. And I think whatever competence I have as a writer comes through that process. But by the time I turn in a draft, I've thought about something very deeply from a number of different angles. And, you know, I'm pretty confident at that point that that is my opinion. I'm going to read a passage, which seems for me to get at what I loved about this collection. Perhaps this is another way of saying that subtlety is a transaction of faith. The artist must have faith that her effects will be perceived in the way she intends. The reader must trust that what he detects beneath the surface of the text is not merely a figment of his imagination. The disciple must come to believe that the whispers he hears in the wilderness are not the wind or the devil, but the voice of his creator. All religion, all forms of love depend on the sleep. It's great that you can have authority as a writer and live in that place of subtlety in that in the midst of that leap, leap of faith, just by force of being willing to put your questionings and your process of discovery down on the page, um, which is a great thing about writing. This essay, Ghost in the Cloud, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about it. So the piece I wrote about transhumanism, Ghost in the Cloud, was about how, you know, a few years after I left Bible school, I became really obsessed with Ray Kurzweil and these other, you know, technologically, I would call them, um, you know, they identify as transhumanists, this idea that humans are going to merge with technology in the future, that our bodies are going to become incorruptible, that we're going to live forever, that we'll be able to resurrect the dead. You know, and these are all sort of people who are arguing what, to me, the essay is largely about how I realized that these were essentially Christian ideas, that this was Christian eschatology realized through science. And this is sort of one example of what I see happening in a lot of places where the, the Christian redemptive narrative, like you can't just stop believing in that as a culture and then just sort of, okay, we're all going to hang out now. You know, like people are finding that eschatological hope in other places, either through politics or through science, through technology, you know, this idea that we're still going to achieve utopia and have all of these promises that we've believed in. So I think that the Christian redemption narrative is something that we've, you know, believed in for centuries and centuries as a culture that's not just going to go away with people leaving religion. I think that you see it increasingly in other places, either through politics, through science, through technology. I think, you know, obviously this is my perspective as somebody who's left the faith, and maybe I'm just projecting this onto the culture, but I, I do see it in a lot of different places that 
this longing for certainty, particularly about the future, is something that people are sort of trying to find through other non-religious avenues. You're also really sympathetic to those urges as well, especially in your essay about Alcoholics Anonymous. That's another essay that grapples with science and belief and how the two things work together and don't, and how sometimes storytelling and belief can be more powerful than science. You have another essay as well that comes right before that, A Species of Origins, about the Creation Museum. Can you talk a little bit about those two essays and the interplay in both of them between science and fact and mythos and story? Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of those as connected, but you're right, they do sort of both grapple with science in different ways. I think a lot of these pieces in the in the collection do. The piece about AA started just because I... I there was a period of time in, I think it was around 2013, 2014, where there were several books that came out within a short period of time, all of which were criticizing 12-step programs, particularly AA. And they all made the same case. It wasn't just that AA was bad for whatever reason. It was specifically because it was unscientific and because they were arguing that addicts and alcoholics needed more evidence-based forms of recovery. These authors are basically arguing that alcoholics needed medication, or they were big fans of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is supposedly evidence-based. I felt like there was something really fishy about those critiques from the beginning. It seemed like a lot of it had less to do with the fact that AA was not was not effective because it actually has, um, there's a, a lot of evidence that it is effective. I sense that the, the problem with AA was that it was outside of these sort of scientific methods. And the fact that it was using spirituality to address something that is a medical issue was really why it was being attacked. I, I read all of these books, and um, it, the irony is that like the things that they were advocating in place of AA were just as insubstantial and fluffy, as if, if not more so, than sort of the spiritual concepts of Alcoholics Anonymous these sort of very basic cognitive behavioral methods like, oh, you know, give yourself a treat for not drinking or use this app that tells when you're getting into a danger zone. Something I keep returning to is about how a lot of like a lot of science right now is being questions like the, the, the basic methods of science. You know, there's this problem right now in the social sciences, the replication crisis, where basically Scientists have been unable to replicate some of the landmark studies that have been published over the last several decades. The very methods that we consider so concrete and um, you know evidence based are are not basically what we thought that that they, that they were. I, I write about this, I think, a little bit in the Species of Origins piece about the Creation Museum. A lot of science now, like particularly quantum physics, is going into these areas that, you know, we're forced to contend with the limits of our intelligence as humans and our ability to understand the universe. And a lot of theoretical physics is really just beyond our ability to reckon with, um, with our limited Euclidean brains. So I think there is a way in which science is increasingly requires some measure of faith or it's just undermining itself in a lot of ways. And so these, I, I, I guess the what I'm interested in is that when I was first leaving the faith, there was a very clear binary between religious faith and science. And that, I think, over the past several years has become a lot blurrier. You mentioned these essays are written over a span of many years, and then you had the task of sort of collecting them and arranging them and putting them together in a book. And what has that process been like for you to see your work arranged and to think about 
what thoughts lead into other thoughts. Why did I choose these subjects? Like, why do I keep writing about these same things? And, you know, as, as I mentioned in the, the preface, it, there is something that's like a little bit perverse about it, or I worry that it is the fact that I keep returning to Christianity. And I, I think there's a lot of writers that had experiences with faith, John Jeremiah Sullivan, you know, Kristen Dombeck, Jordan Kistner, there's all these writers that have had some sort of experience with Christianity growing up, and they write like one essay about it. And then, you know, that's it. And it sort of puts to bed and, you know, I'm sure to flex their writing in other ways. The fact that I keep returning and wanting to write about Christianity, it's been like 15 years almost since I've been out of the church. I don't know why that is, why that's something that I'm still wrestling with. But that was really the biggest thing for me in seeing the essays collected because I did, like I said, I didn't set out in any conscious way to write about that topic. It was just something that just kept coming back. Um, And even, I mean, the pieces, there's several pieces in here that are not about Christianity, like the AA piece. There's several pieces about the Midwest. But I think those concerns still keep coming back even when I'm not writing directly about Christianity. Several of the pieces are about science. That's not something I ever thought I was interested in. I was homeschooled when I grew up until 10th grade and had like no science education whatsoever. My understanding of earth science was basically the book of Genesis up until around 10th grade. You know, when I started writing these essays, I identified as an atheist. And I think that's something that softened a little bit. And I don't know how writing fits into that, if that's been part of the process or if writing is just my way of working through it. I think I'm much more agnostic now and I'm much more sort of just ambivalent about religious questions and, you know, what we can rationally know about the universe. But I think that's also sort of the way the culture is going. When I left Christianity, you know, I read a lot of like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and all of these sort of the new atheists were very in vogue then. And, you know, I think that people my age especially are much more and and younger, I think, are much more interested in other forms of spirituality than they were maybe during the Bush years. (laughs) I'm working on a book um, actually about, so when I sold the essay collection, I got like a two book deal. So um, the second book is also about technology and sort of the theological and philosophical questions that it's raising, um, particularly the theological questions. Um, And it started off, I I pitched the book basically as an expansion of the essay I wrote for M plus one about transhumanism. And over the process of researching and beginning the writing process, it's, it's veered a little bit away from that topic into slightly, I mean, the piece I wrote in for M plus one was primarily about how transhumanism is adhering to this Christian redemptive narrative And that's a point that has been made a lot. And it seems very familiar. Maybe it seems familiar to me because I've written about it now and I just spent so much time immersed in people who are making similar arguments when I was doing research for that piece. But I'm kind of more interested now in technologies that are not so much speculative, like, you know, cryogenically freezing people or creating cyborgs as opposed to technologies that are actually in development now. So how are, you know, deep learning algorithms raising questions about consciousness and free will? You know, what is, how are we going to contend with this idea of super intelligence, particularly super intelligence that doesn't 
share human values, uh, which is something that's already sort of in development right now. So yeah, I'm, I'm like still, um, I don't know how much I want to talk about that project. I'm, I'm writing essays also as well. In addition to that, I just wrote a piece about homeschooling that talks about my experience growing up. Um, all my siblings, I'm the oldest of five kids. My siblings and I were all homeschooled growing up. And um, I sort of talk about the history of the homeschooling movement. So that was a really fun piece to write. But yeah, mostly, I mean, I'm still working on nonfiction. I would love to go back and write fiction at some point, but I don't know if I'm ready to yet. Thanks so much for so many great questions. Yeah, it was a really, I love talking to you. I love hearing about how all of these things came to be and how you think about them. I like to think about how all of these things came to be in your head, but then on the page.